0: Listener production. Welcome to State Crime Command, the official podcast of the New South Wales Police Force. I'm your host, Adam Shand. June 11th, 2020, Toya Evans and her mother are walking their dogs along Yumina Beach on the New South Wales Central Coast. The weather is cold and blustery, but it's clearing after days of rain and sea storms. The beach is virtually empty. It's 1.30 in the afternoon, and the receding tide has left the sand strewn with shells and other marine debris. As she walks, 20-year-old Toya notices a dark crescent shape sticking out of the yellow sand. I leant over to see what was sticking out of the sand, and it turned out to be a human jawbone. The jaw is almost black and stands out from the sand. Toya can see some teeth are still in place, and their whiteness contrasts with the black bone, giving it a surreal quality. Toya bags her find and takes it to the Woiwoi Woi police station. This is the start of a long-term investigation as police and forensic scientists seek to establish who the jawbone belongs to and how it came to be on this beach.
1: Detectives are trying to link past cold cases and missing persons reports to the jawbone, which was unusually dark in colour, almost black. Initial reports indicate the bone may have been in the water for some time.
0: More than a year later, the identity of the mysterious mandible or jawbone is still unknown. So far, it's not been linked to any missing persons case or any other human remains on record. The New South Wales Police Force's Missing Persons Registry with Gosford Detectives are seeking the assistance of the public in unravelling the story, who this person was and what happened to them. Police are reviewing all the evidence in this case and they need your help. If something in this podcast sparks a memory or even a thought, make sure you share it with police or call Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. Just tell someone. So, what do we know at the beginning? The jawbone came from a teenage boy, no more than 15 years old. A child. When kids go missing in Australia, it makes big news, and people come forward in most cases, sooner or later. This time, that hasn't happened. No one has claimed the remains of this lost child. It's too early in this investigation to suspect that this young person met with foul play, But it makes you wonder, for someone out there, perhaps the discovery of this jawbone was the day they were dreading for a long time.
2: The big thing for me is who doesn't report a missing child?
3: I'm Detective Senior Constable Rodney Debra. I'm stationed at Gosford Police Station. I've been in the police force for about 32 years now.
0: Rodney Debra is the officer in charge of this investigation. Gosford is a busy station an hour north of Sydney. It covers an expanding population as people leave Sydney for a coastal dream of cheaper housing. There's a lot of wealth here, but also a lot of poverty. Police get to see almost everything.
3: Don't often have just human remains or human bones found lying around on the beach. We got a call from one of the officers at Warwick Police Station about a bone that had been handed in at the police station there. My first thought was... Usually when these things happen, it's um, leftover from a barbecue or something like that, just a bone tossed out. My first reaction was, "Okay, this is some sort of toy or, say, medical model or something that's been made up for a purpose. But then, yeah, when they came back to me and said, bang, this is human, I was like, wow, okay, I've never seen a bone like that. If one bone had made it
0: to the high tide line, perhaps washed up with a storm, there could be others to be found on the beach, the dunes, or even in the bay. It was now late afternoon and the light was fading.
3: Yeah, so time was against us. Uh, this occasion being June, winter time, so sun sets around the five o'clock mark. So we had to maintain a crime scene overnight. Just cordoned off as much of that as we possibly could and. Then the following day we had a crime scene examination of the beach area, bearing in mind this bone was just found lying on top of the sand. So we did a search around there. The bone
0: was found on the southern end of the beach, near an entry point to the Ocean Beach Caravan Park,
3: 200 metres south of the Yamina Beach Surf Club. We had um, our OSG police conduct a line search through the vegetation and the surrounding park area and along the beach.
0: The operations support group are specialist members trained in navigation and terrain. These police were joined in the search by expert consultants in anthropology and archaeology who sought to identify a possible target area based on the condition of the bone and where it was found.
2: I'm Dr. Penny McArdle, New South Wales forensic anthropologist and archaeologist, and work with New South Wales Police and Department of Forensic Medicine. So I look at all the skeletal remains, all the bone that comes into Newcastle Department of Forensic Medicine and help the police in the recovery and identification out in the field as well and also identify any trauma to bone. So tool marks, um, reconstruct bullet wounds, figure out what happened, what, what weapons were used.
0: Dr McArdle assessed the morphology of the jawbone, looking for indications as to gender, age and race and the possible time of death she quickly overturned some assumptions.
2: There were actually two reactions. One was it's really old and the other one was, well, it's burnt. Both were incorrect. The thing that really stands out is the colour of it. It's pretty dark. There's a lot of black in there with a bit of um, light grey colouring as well. Normally when we find bone, it's either white, it's bleached, being exposed to the sun, or it's brown, taking on the colour of the dirt. The antiquity of a bone is not dependent on the colour of it. I've excavated ancient remains up to 800 years old that have been in really good condition and yet looked at more recent ones that are in so much worse condition that, that may be only a few years old. So looking at the condition of a bone is not doesn't help with antiquity at all.
0: Dr McArdle's expertise helped focus the search. Police were looking for any sand or soil nearby that matched the dark grey black colour of the bone.
2: When you look at the stratigraphy, cause the beach had eroded and we could see the stratigraphy on that eroded bit. You have your normal coloured sands but there's also a dark grey layer in there as well which matched the colour of the jawbone.
0: This dark grey layer could be ilmenite. It's been mined on Central Coast beaches since the 19th century along with rutile, a reddish brown mineral sand which is more common in the area. The challenge was to find enough dark sand to encase a human jawbone.
2: What we could see, none of those grey, dark grey layers were thick enough or wide enough to have contained a complete body or even a complete jaw. They were very thin, very narrow.
0: The problem for the search team was the lack of a specific target area. The thin layers of dark sand yielded nothing so the area was expanded to include the dunes behind the beach and across the esplanade that runs along Yumina beachfront. Detective Senior Constable Rodney Debra.
3: If you actually look at the dune area there, you can see there are a few different layers of sand there. It's um, where the tea tree and the other scrub and native vegetation is. There is some actual quite good soil in there, so there is some dark areas of soil in there and there are some sand layers as well. Across
0: the road the dark soils ran out. Dr. Penny McArdle.
2: We dug a test pit to see what colour the soils were there and they were completely different, they were a brown colour. So we were able to rule out that location as well.
0: The bone itself gave Penny McArdle clues as to how long it had been in the water.
2: There's no, for want of a better word, fleshy bits on it and it's has a little bit of shine to it and a little bit of smoothness which indicates that it has been in the water for a short amount of time because parts of the bone are still sharp. When bone is in water for an extended period of time and you have that action with the water and the sand and whatnot, it actually starts to polish it and smooth the bone. We only have a tiny amount of that generally on this bone, there's still some sharp pieces remaining so it hasn't been in the water for that long.
0: As Gosford detectives worked on this jawbone, the New South Wales Marine Area Command was closing the case of another jawbone, washed up at Kingscliff Beach on the far north New South Wales coast. I covered this investigation in the Lost at Sea One podcast. On the face of it, there were obvious similarities. On September 24th, 2011, part of a human jawbone was found on Kingscliff Beach in northern New South Wales. It was a fragment, badly weathered, that included five teeth. (laughs) Through DNA, police linked the jaw to Bill Moran, a mariner who was lost after a shipwreck in 1979. Bill's jaw was badly weathered after 41 years in the ocean, yet a tooth yielded enough DNA to make the match. The Eumina jaw was perhaps another soul lost at sea in tragic circumstances. With these remains recovered, hopes for identification are high. It took 10 years for DNA science to advance enough to identify Bill Moran's remains. In June 2020, there was every expectation this new case would be as straightforward as these cases can be. The teeth in this well-preserved jaw shone out against the black bone. There was plenty of DNA material for the forensic scientists to work on. Dr McArdle's opinion was that our lost individual had died just 10 years ago. This was a curveball for the investigation. In Bill Moran's case, the shipwreck of his vessel Nocturne tied everything together. Working from Dr McArdle's age estimate, investigators looked for another marine event that corresponded with this individual's death. Detective Senior Constable Rodney Debras.
3: He said it was not likely more than 10 years old, as in 10 years deceased. And um, from the structure of the bone, we were looking at possibly a young male. So we're talking, say, from the age of around about 10, 11, up to maybe early 20s.
0: DNA testing confirmed the individual was male. After the discovery of the bone, police searched the records of past marine tragedies in the area. In 1898, a paddle steamer, the SS Maitland, went down further north of Umina with the loss of 27 lives. In 1948, two small craft, the Joyce and the Sid, were lost at a cost of 11 lives. Not a trace of either vessel was found. DNA testing was carried out on descendants of some of those lost, without success. There was one recent case that possibly fit. In June 2010, a 20-year-old man, Ryan Sainty, was lost while kayaking in Brisbane Water, the main estuary that flows into Broken Bay, not far north of Yumina Beach.
1: The discovery of partial remains floating in Brisbane Water has explained the fate of missing kayaker Ryan Sainty, who disappeared almost 10 months ago.
0: The timing of Ryan's disappearance seemed promising and some digging by Gosford detectives revealed that only partial remains had been recovered, which had not included his jaw.
3: That was an initial thought with Mr Sainty, but um, we've compared DNA and dental records and we can confirm it, it's not Ryan Sainty.
0: Police continue to look for possible matches on the National Missing Persons database while grappling with the riddle of this case. Where was this jawbone for the past 10 years, if it only recently found its way into the ocean? And why was it so well
3: preserved? It was likely to have been buried or protected from the elements somehow or somewhere. So that would suggest that it's either been buried in the soil there or um, you know perhaps kept in storage somewhere and preserving it in that good condition.
0: How bones move and disperse in the sea depends on how they came to be there. Bones do not float. A human body decomposes over a few weeks and the bones settle on the ocean floor. They shift with tides and storms that push volumes of sand and debris against the coastal landforms. Eumina is an exceptional and well-studied beach. It's a closed system. The beach sand swirls around the bay and very little is carried in from deeper water. The sand is gradually deposited on the beach and dunes over a seven-year period until storms and king tides drag it back into the bay, cutting a two-metre swathe in the beachfront. The erosion of the beach exposes the layers that have built up over seven years, the so-called stratigraphy that the search team examined. Beachcombers and metal detectorists come out in force at these moments to look for long-lost items revealed after the storms. Was the jawbone revealed, or did it wash ashore? The first half of 2020 was marked by storms and heavy rains on the New South Wales coast. June had been a relatively dry month, but for one week of rain and sea storms. Rainfall on June 10, the day before the jawbone appeared, was the highest for the month. Curiously, the more sustained period of turbulent weather had failed to reveal the jawbone leading some to believe it had been dislodged from a burial site further inland and washed down into the ocean from one of the five stormwater drains that empty into the beach. The lack of dark soils beyond the beach makes that unlikely. From the air, all you can see is an expanse of light brown clay soils. There's a creek that flows into the southern end of the beach, but that only floods when tidal surges push seawater back up the creek and any remains that had been in the creek most likely would have been damaged by predators like mud crabs that crack bones with their powerful pincers. These factors keep drawing the team back to the beach and the dark layers of sand, which in themselves do not provide a satisfactory explanation. Perhaps this jawbone had been brought to Yamina in sand and soil used in beachworks and plantings.
1: Well, the council's been dredging there for years, decades. Also, when they were creating the caravan park there and modifying and updating, they also heaped soil in that area. My name's Louise Dettings. Sometimes I'm called out by the New South Wales Police when they have strange situations or odd circumstances in which human remains might have been found, and they... Look to people like me, as a forensic specialist, my focus is on the landscape.
0: The navigational entrance to Brisbane Water is called the Etalong Channel, and from 2016, it was fast silting up. In 2018, there was emergency dredging to reinstate the channel. 20,000 cubic metres of sand was removed and deposited on Yumina and Ocean beaches. In 2020, another 20,000 cubic metres of sand was dredged and ended up on those same beaches. Council records suggest that up to 50,000 cubic metres of sand, or 76 tonnes, has been deposited on Yumina and Ocean beaches in the decade from 2010. Louise Stedding says the dredging site is worth further examination.
4: The other significant piece of dredging was also at the entrance to the harbour of Brisbane Waters around the corner where yep. and they moved a lot of sand from there to open up that channel and deposited yep. it around about Ocean Beach.
1: And that's where it could have come from too when they brought it around from 2019 to open that channel if it was mixed with darker soils at the time Uh, So knowing the events that have occurred are really, really important because it gives potential sources from where this bone has come.
4: So it could be, Louise, that this bone has been buried somewhere else and scooped up in soil and brought to the beach.
1: Exactly. So you really want to know where is this dark soil, where has it come from and
2: who bought it?
0: Dr Penny McArdle.
2: I think the limitations primarily was we, we just didn't have a target area to focus on. I mean, this jaw could have come from that beach, but it could have come from somewhere else as well. There was just no way of knowing or pinpointing any search area. So we covered the entire beach area as much as we could.
0: Right now, no theory carries more weight than the rest. The bone could have come to Yumina from the ocean, from dark mineral sands further afield, or to the beach via the town's stormwater system. It could have been revealed by a storm or simply placed on the beach by someone who wanted it to be discovered. There's nothing to say the individual has anything to do with the Gosford area at all. Rodney DeBras' team is double-checking missing persons records. It's possible this bone came from an individual where remains have already been recovered. DeBras wants to eliminate any chance of administrative error.
3: Well, it is possible. The answer is somewhere... um... A lot of the time with uh, missing persons reports, things like that, or just with general record keeping in particular, sometimes things are missed, sometimes things aren't kept 100% accurately, and that can cause us problems with trying to identify things in the future.
0: Debra has thrown open the parameters to include all possible matches nationally.
3: If we look through all the missing person cases, there are sort of a few that do fit that profile that we have eliminated so far, but there is a considerably long list of missing persons uh, where we don't have, say, DNA, dental records, whatever to conduct a comparison with. As we're indicating, we're looking for that further testing from the forensic people, the phenotyping and biographical ancestry, again, to try and give us some indications as to say things like hair colour, maybe some more ancestry so it can better pinpoint the race, ethnicity, things like that. Anything to help us get a better description of who the person could be. It's late August,
0: 2021. Dr. Philip Kendall has returned to the x-rays and notes he made of this jawbone back in June 2020, and he has a couple of theories that may change the course of this investigation. The retired dentist attended the autopsy for the Yamina jawbone at John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle.
5: What do I do? I'm, I'm a dentist. I've been a dentist in private practice for about 45 years in Newcastle, and at about the end of 2012, early 2013, I was asked by a friend that I graduated with, Chris Griffiths, to do forensic odontology at the John Hunter, which I um, have done since then. And that is the identification of remains which cannot be identified by normal visual means.
0: A 15-year-old human jaw should have 14 teeth. Twelve erupted or visible, and two wisdom teeth unerupted. When found, this jawbone had only eight, six erupted and two wisdom teeth. Kendall could see that six teeth had been lost post-mortem in the ten years before the bone was recovered. That left two missing teeth unaccounted for. Kendall knew straight away they'd been removed surgically. He'd done these extractions many times before. And it was often on kids with disadvantaged backgrounds. He told the police all this at the autopsy. After reflecting on the x-rays in his notes for this interview, Phil wants to share some thoughts and a couple of hunches. So what did this jaw tell you? Um, how long have you got? <laughs>
4: <laughs> this is open-ended mystery right now, so take your time. What was your first impression when you saw it?
5: The bone was blackened, which is not usual. The first thing is it's, it's sort of small in size, by normal standards. The position of the wisdom teeth and the development of the roots of the wisdom teeth indicate that the person is a 15-year-old. Maximum? Well, they're about give or take a year.
4: Yep, yeah. A young boy, cool. teenage boy, or girl. Do you think it's a boy or a girl?
0: At the time of our interview, Dr. Kendall was unaware that DNA testing had settled the question of gender. His opinion was instinctive based on experience, and it was correct.
5: I sort of had a a feeling that it was a a boy, but that's just a feeling. I can't say that it is one or the other. The second thing I saw was that uh, some teeth had been removed. They'd been extracted while the person was alive. And the next thing after that that I noticed was that the first permanent molars, that is the first molar tooth in your head, the first of three, uh, in this jaw had been extracted.
0: These molars had been removed from each side of the jaw.
5: Not only had they been extracted, but the teeth behind what we call the second and third molar, the wisdom teeth being the third molar, uh, had moved forward into the space where that first molar used to be. I see. This is all quite important because the fact that those sixes, that we call them the sixes, they're the first molars, the fact that they're missing indicates that they were damaged in some way. If you remember that this tooth, the first molar, is in the person's mouth from about the age of six onwards, there must have been some reason for taking them out. There's a lot more that I learned when I took some x rays of the teeth that are there. And when I took x rays of it, I noticed on the left second molar, that's the one that has moved forward into the space where the first molar used to be, had a very large decay in it. And that's unusual because that tooth has only been in the head for about three years, and that's a lot of decay. Considering that that amount of decay has occurred in a tooth that's only been there three years, it's a fair bet that the first permanent molars, which had been there for some considerable time, uh, longer than three years, could well have been extremely damaged by decay. You so far?
4: Yes, I am.
5: Well, uh, I estimate that uh, looking at this jaw, and just from what I've seen in 45 years of practice, I estimate that those teeth were taken out the first mile was three or four years ago. That is because the teeth behind it moved forward fairly rapidly. And it's also a fair bet that the upper teeth were taken out at the same time because the spaces have closed quickly. If the upper teeth had been left behind, the upper first molars had been left there, these teeth on the bottom would not have moved forward as quickly as they did. My theory is that all the first molars were decayed and they were taken out. Can I paint a picture for you? You can. I'm guessing that the person certainly uh, had a neglected mouth they would not have spent a lot of time at the dentist. But the amount of decay in the teeth, just in the ones that are there... And these unfilled? But these unfilled? Oh, no, no, there's no fillings. There's no sign of any dentistry other than the uh, extraction of those uh, sixes.
0: Dr. Kendall believes he can estimate when this extraction was done, give or take a year.
5: I think you said that the anthropologist estimated the jaw was 10 years since their death. Is that That's right? That's correct. Yes. All right, 2020. That takes us back to 2010. So imagine a dentist who sees an 11-year-old, very likely in pain, and the four first molars are grossly carious. Yes, deep, and the tissues are showing strong signs of becoming crowded because of lack of space. All those things are true. The dentist, if he's experienced or her, at a stroke can solve the immediate problem of uh, pain, because that's probably what's driven the person into the dentist, and rampant decay in the first molars, and uh, possibly diminish a future problem of crowding and therefore the need for orthodontic treatment simply by extracting all four first molars. That's going to be quite traumatic for an 11 year old. And if you had access to a general anaesthetic facility, you would give them a general anaesthetic and take them all out at once.
4: Because a local anaesthetic with that many teeth, that's a major stint in the chair, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like oh. more something you well, do in hospital. Absolutely. And this is the kind of situation that you've seen previously in people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, possibly housing commission, this type of thing.
5: Not exclusively, but yes.
4: Well, that's still a big cohort, isn't it?
5: We've nailed it down a little bit. If you were to, let's say, go to the government dental clinics in Gosford, the dentist would be inclined to put the person into hospital, take out the teeth of the first molars, which are probably aching, and then uh, just let it all run its course and check it in a couple of years' time and see how it's going. That would have happened around 2006. If the person did go to the hospital and have those teeth taken out under general anaesthetic, there would also be a anti-mortem x-ray taken, an OPG x-ray.
0: Anti-mortem x-rays are those taken during dental visits during our lives.
5: If I had one of them, I would have a very good chance of being able to identify that they was from the same person.
4: Great. Well, let's just get one of those. How hard can that be? Very hard, I think.
5: <laughs> well, we know what year, approximately, 2006, yeah. give or take. Somebody who probably was in the public system had a general anaesthetic and had four teeth removed under general anaesthetic. And funnily enough, we can't find them. Is that
4: not that difficult or is it possible oh, within the I, system?
5: I, I regularly get anti-mortem x-rays from dentists and the clinics to do my routine stuff of uh, identifying remains. That's half of the process.
0: Matching the x-rays would be as simple as laying one image over the other on a light box.
5: It's not a common operation which works for you. You know it's yeah. about 2005, six, seven, that sort of time. Yeah. Hospitals generally keep pretty good records of that sort of thing. Sure. We assume they come from the area.
4: Yes, you can make that assumption at this stage. So, really, Uh, what you'd be saying to the investigators is let's go to the records of the hospitals and see if we can match. This
0: jaw to a procedure of which there will be records. Yeah. Phil Kendall also has a feeling about the ethnicity of the lost child. Oh,
5: well, the other thing that struck me was the jaw was heavy. When the as as I picked it up, I said, "This is heavy for a jaw." What I'm getting around to is, I suspect. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a, an ethnic factor to this.
4: Is that right? Which which ethnicity?
5: Oh, Aboriginal.
4: Okay. So you're going to go for it? There has been Caucasian put forward. Well, I might come back Did... to you and see how your hunch went. <laughs>
5: Yeah, well, that might be a reckoning.
0: To date, police have believed the jawbone to be Caucasian. Forensic archaeologist Dr Penny McArdle gave that opinion. However, it came with significant qualifications.
2: So looking at the morphology of the bone, there are a few traits that indicate that it's Caucasian. One was that the overall shape of it was oval when you looked at it from the top, and the angle of the mandibular base is greater than 90 degrees, which are Caucasian traits. Um, But in saying that, it is a juvenile, and the morphology of the bone of someone so young is not fully developed yet. So even though there are obvious traits that say it's Caucasian, it's not fully developed. So there may be traits that may have developed in, in the next couple of years that just aren't there yet.
0: Dr Phil Kendall.
5: I'm looking at the photograph here now. Um, it's not refined. It's sort of coarse. The process is coming from the jaw, uh, bulky and thick and the surface of the bone is quite smooth and almost shiny and bulky, it's a heavy jaw. And so that could possibly indicate an indigenous provenance? Yeah, well like I say, I wouldn't be surprised, I wouldn't Mm. want to bet a house on it. The thing that bothers me, because if you look at it from above, it's a small jaw, even for a 15 year old. And the condyles, that's the the part that actually articulates with the skull up in front of your ear, are large. And that's an indigenous trait? Well, yeah. The x-rays that I took show dense bone. When you look at a bone as a sort of like a piece of transparent cloth pulled across the teeth, and you can see the roots of teeth when you look at an x-ray of the, uh, the jawbone and the teeth, and the bone looks... Highly calcified to me, dense. It's like looking at the roots of the tooth through a snowstorm.
0: This density again points to an indigenous heritage, which is at odds with what we know so far. Hi, Phil. Are you still there, Penny? Given this variance of opinion, I brought doctors Kendall and McArdle together in a phone call.
4: Thank you very much, both of you. So based on your experience of looking at a lot of mouths, I mean, the bone is not necessarily your specific area of expertise, but having looked at a lot of mouths... You've got a fairly reasonable assumption of some Indigenous element.
0: Well, the way I put it
4: to you was that I wouldn't be surprised.
0: Perhaps there was another possibility, that the individual was neither Caucasian nor Indigenous, but a mix of the two. Penny McArdle's opinion of Caucasian had been explicitly qualified. This was a juvenile individual who was still growing. Other traits could have emerged in later years. Yes, so we have potentially both Caucasian
4: and Indigenous elements in the one specimen. So, I mean... Is it possible that we have a mixed individual?
2: Absolutely. Um, we have a lot of what we call biological variation now. Uh, we're starting to see it more and more in this country where because people travel a lot and you know you're birth to people of mixed races and whatnot, that is starting to show up in the morphology of the bones. So for example, an Aboriginal skeleton that we would have looked at 50 years ago, that was clearly Aboriginal with morphological traits, very distinct, not necessarily so anymore. It
0: doesn't take long to arrive at the possibility this person was of mixed-race heritage. This is a theory both experts can live with.
4: You know, I think we can provisionally say that we sort of have a possibility of accepting an argument of mixed-race, but it's far from certain at this point. Yeah. 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 Good.
0: If these opinions are correct, a picture of the lost child emerges. A 15-year-old boy, mixed-race, small in stature, with bad teeth. Perhaps he had four teeth removed in a government hospital. There may be records with his name on it and a date around 2006. An x-ray to compare to Dr Kendall's from the autopsy could settle the question of identity. It's all a hunch. That's all police have right now. The results of DNA phenotyping will be available in the coming months we'll know the colour of the boy's hair and eyes. And later, we might know his ethnicity, what Phil Kendall describes as the day of reckoning for his theories. As Detective Senior Constable Rodney Debras awaits the outcome of the DNA testing, he's appealing to anyone who might have information on this case to come forward.
3: Any ideas even, please, I would encourage them to get in touch with us. The only silly question is the one that you don't ask. Same with information that's given to us. I mean, it may not seem like anything important or may not seem like much to anyone else, but to us, it could be something very important that we can work with or gather some more information on. So we certainly encourage that for people to get in touch with this.
0: This case is also an opportunity to build the national database of DNA that police can match to remains like this.
3: People who have reported people missing, we encourage them as well to contact police, get their DNA on record so matches can be made in the future. That is certainly what we're hoping for and you know, with all our technologies continually evolving DNA especially, the more sample, the bigger database that we have there then certainly leads to a lot more of these cases that we can bring some sort of conclusion to.
0: If you can help unravel the mystery of the black bone, please get in touch with Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000, or your local police station. All information will be treated as confidential. In the next episode of Lost at Sea, the Black Bone, DNA phenotyping brings police one step closer to bringing a lost child home. And analysis of the bone yields more evidence of where it may have come from. State Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia Written and produced by Adam Shand Executive Producer Grant Tothill Original Music and Mixing by Matt Nicolich Associate Producer Matt Dwyer Additional Editing by Kelly Falston New South Wales Police Producer Sergeant Donna Bruce Digital Producers Jack Shand and Oscar Gordon Research by Nolly Way Shand Listener